Welcome to Executive Tools, the purpose of the organization, chapter one, basics, part two. Here we go. This cast answers these questions. Why does my organization exist? How does this affect me as an executive? What can I do to become an executive? Well, if you want answers to these questions and more, as always, keep listening. So Mark, last week, we kind of start off talking about this story of this newly named CEO. We're, yeah, we don't need Alistair, to by the way. I don't know that I'm. No, I don't think you said that. Alistair. Uh, so name. It's his nice name is Alistair. Yes. Of course, you would like that being an mm -hmm. Anglophile. Yeah, Anglophile and, and a golf file. And a golf. Well. Oh, and that's, that's, that's probably the more important thing there. Okay. Yeah. So we summarize by saying that really the duty of the executive is not to oneself or one's career, right? but service to the organization. Right. Yeah. And if you have a problem with that, and I imagine some would. For example, if you're listening to executive tools and you're executive in, say, a, a drug cartel, maybe you have a hard time getting behind the <laughs> I purpose. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> no, I bet you didn't. I didn't. <laughs> maybe you have a hard time getting behind the, the organization. And the organization, of course, being its purpose is to serve society, right? So maybe drug cartel, maybe yeah. you. My hopefully you you'd understand so. maybe that this is all about servicing you and not society. Yeah. And I suggest if you can't get behind your organization's purpose in serving society, and you're not confident that it is in fact serving society, then maybe the rest of this cast would be right. problematic. And you might want to take the action of finding some somewhere else to to work. But assuming yeah. you can, right? If an executive's role is to serve the organization and not him or herself, then, geez, I, I think we probably need to understand the purpose of the organization. Yeah, exactly. And and we'll start with that. The purpose of all ethical organizations is to serve society. It's interesting you brought up the drug cartel thing because they're not trying to serve society. They're trying to milk take society, money from right, society. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And um, we periodically say this, but it's good to say this in one of the, our first few executive tools casts, that we make an assumption about ethics here. Uh, and when people write me and say, well, I know a situation that doesn't apply, I say, yeah, you're, you're talking about an unethical organization. And I assume you don't work there, and I'm glad you don't, and I would recommend that no one else work there. Um, they're corrupt. And there are places, there are organizations today that are well-known, that are corrupt. And uh, we're not talking to those people. Right. We can't. We don't you. think those people <laughs> listen to podcasts about how to be a better executive. But yeah, the purpose of all ethical organizations is to serve society. And I'll just take as a side note, very briefly here, and say the common wisdom, the tearing down of societal organizations governmental organizations, capitalistic organizations, non-governmental organizations, uh, not-for-profits, non-profits, and so on, is embarrassing. Sociologists will tell you the single greatest achievement of mankind is large human organizations. Now, this is not to say that all human organizations are ethical, but for those that are, the purpose of the organization is not to serve the employee, not to serve the executive, but to serve society. It is a service organization. All organizations are service organizations by definition. And too many people start attacking organizations and, and they, they don't like this company or that company. And so then they're generally 
anti-corporate. There was a quite a popular picture that was sent to me recently by a friend or a family member of a young person dressed all in black and uh, with, uh, I would describe as um, popular in a small portion of the world uh, attire and uh, had a $1,200 MacBook laptop. This person is sitting in, in an airport, a laptop uh, from Apple, you know, one of the best made products in the history of the world that could only be made by a highly evolved organization that exists to make the society it serves better. You can't get products of that quality and focus only on yourself. That math, that ethical, social, cultural math doesn't work. And this person's also drinking a cup of coffee at a Starbucks, sitting in an airport. And the the small bumper sticker, I guess you call them laptop stickers. You know, they used to, yeah, yeah. the only place you used to have stickers was on cars, but but now the laptop ticker said, destroy capitalism. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Use those tools that capitalism provided for you to destroy capitalism. Because that world, without ethical organizations, even some of them quite large, even though the most, most organizations are tiny, yeah, try living in a society where human beings don't band together to serve that society's needs and require some form of recompense that allows them to continue to invest to serve the society. And so much of managerial life, individual contributor life, executive life, societal life is built upon this definition. And I have to tell you, in the last five years preparing for executive tools, I have read 20, 30, 40 books on the history of organizations and the, the, the concept of organizations and the purpose of organizations. And boy, some of those definitions are two, three, four hundred words long, dude. It's it's incredible. Oh, you, you, I mean, it's almost as if they're filling up the pages of a textbook because they have a contract to write. Yeah, right. It's bizarre, but but that's it, and it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that. Now, the significance of this is lost on most people. The lack of understanding of the implications of of this principle, this fundamental societal principle. Because people don't understand it, it informs what they're thinking and usually corrupts virtually all, not just young people, but all current and popular discussions about organizations. Um, the person who says destroy capitalism while they're working on a Apple MacBook, it's trendy, but the underlying principles associated with that are built on a profound naivety of the nature and the history and the positive transformative power of human organizations. Now look folks, because you're executives, I know you don't have a lot of time, but unfortunately you can't learn calculus without trig. You can't learn trig without geometry. You can't learn geography, geometry without algebra. And so we're going to give you a little history here. We're not going to cover all of it now, but over the course of the next few years, I'm going to indulge at times, and Mike will allow me, I think, my <laughs> sidebar on talking about history, about why things are the way they are, as flawed as they are. And you know what? Every time I say flawed now, I'm old enough to realize every time I say flawed, what I mean is human. And if all you're going to do is point out the flaws, you're not going to have any friends. Yeah. And for those of you just like, just are hating this digression into a bunch of history, go get a business partner that 
reach 220 books a year yeah. and you'll, you'll know what my life <laughs> yeah, is exactly. like. <laughs> yeah. But, but Mike, you're not complaining, are you? No, not, not, no, not, no, not at all. Not, not, I, not benef- at all. I benefit all. greatly from your you're reading. Not, not at all. Just yeah. do just bottom line up front. Just give me, just give me the synopsis. Yeah, exactly. The synopsis. Some, um, well, I think the synopsis is the Big Bang Theory on TV. <laughs> there was yeah. a Big Bang. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay. So, again, this is necessary because the, you, your context as an executive, folks, derives solely from your organizational context. And to discuss organizations without understanding their history and foundational concepts is like playing basketball with a baseball or vice versa. I, I saw this many years ago. There was a trend about tribes quote, tribes, unquote, being important in management and careers and organizations because tribes were, quote, like organizations. But that's just stupidity, guys. It's absolute stupidity. And there are people that come along, posers that come along, they're going to say, well, your organization is like this or like that. Yes, the road in front of my house is a bit like the slip and slide. It's straight <laughs> and it's rectangular. And it's wet and when sometimes. it gets wet, it's slippery. <laughs> but that's a stupid comparison. So a tribal scholar, somebody who studied tribes, true tribes, which led, by the way, to, oh, now I'm forgetting the number, uh, Dunbar's number, some of that early research, would completely laugh at the argument that corporations are tribes, just like we would laugh at a baseball pitcher trying to throw a, ba- trying to throw a basketball for a strike. Well, but it's a round ball. It's the same thing. They're like each other. Or trying to dribble a baseball. Again, it's a round thing. You should be able to dribble it. It should be fine. So you have to understand how it happened in order to understand your role in serving the organization. You know, organizations, as I said before, greatest achievements of humankind. In return for each of its employees, its members, its associates, being willing to accept something less than total personal freedom. Because by the way, when you're on your own, you have total personal freedom. Okay. Once you become an adult, you don't have personal freedom, total personal freedom when you're six months old. By the time you're a young adult, if you choose to break away from your family, you're free, uh, assuming you live in a free country. And if you choose to join an organization, there's an assumption there that most people get, and certainly young people don't get. I, I don't know that I knew this. I was told it by my parents, I'm sure. But when you join an organization of other people, you have to be willing to accept something less than total personal freedom. You give up some of your freedoms. And when you join, let's call it a work organization, a non-governmental organization, not-for-profit, for-profit, capitalistic, non-capitalistic, governmental, academic, or whatever, you decide that I am going to narrow my ability to do what I want. can't dance naked on your desk. You could do that on at home in your bedroom with the door closed, but you can't do that at work as an example. You accept some less than total personal freedom in return for the magical, frankly, the more I think about it as I as I age, um, the the magical ability through the specialization of labor to magnify human productivity, creativity, discipline, and intelligence. A hundred thousand, even a million individuals could not create iPhones on their own. 10 million individuals 
without communication, without structure, without organizational purpose, could not build pipelines on their own. They couldn't create the internet on their own. They couldn't build bridges that span miles or install systems that bring water to those people who don't have water. That takes organization. Did anybody ever think about that? That takes organizational skills. That's why we have organizations, because it takes organization to make humans more effective. It's like riding a bike. I've said this before. I probably, um, maybe I said it on career tools or manager tools, executives. I don't know. And you're not going to talk about riding naked on a bike, are you? Because no, that really not, just freaked me not, out. I totally yeah, freaked me out. Everybody, please remember <laughs> that Mike brought up riding naked on a bike. I did not. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you did. I, I didn't bring, I didn't, I didn't bring up naked. It wasn't even in my head. It wasn't even in my head. Now they can't, they're going to hear that you, you said it. It's like telling your audience, don't think of pink elephants. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. So I, I remember reading the encyclopedia as a kid and seeing a graphic showing the relative land speeds of different species of animals. Humans running were not that fast. No, I think they actually had a couple of birds, like an osprey going 90 miles an hour <laughs> and a cheetah going 70, I think, for short burst. But there was also, way out there toward the right, a human on a bicycle. <laughs> and so suddenly we were very nearly the top of the 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 food chain, if you will. And today, I don't know if you know this, Mike, a human being has ridden a bicycle at 90 miles an hour. Now, I think, I think it's done, it may be done in the Bonneville Salt Flats, but I think it's done with an air shield. I mean, they have a car in front of them. Oh, okay. Uh, wind, reducing wind, wind resistance. resistance. Yeah. Uh, but, but I'm not sure about that. And look, I, I'm not trying to compare a bicyclist or a runner to a cheetah as a, just a what human beings can do. I'm trying to give a comparative look at what humans can do when we think more broadly than what can I myself do alone? Now, look, guys, some history brief. Modern organizations are only about four or five centuries old. And you may think, well, gosh, that's a long time. But since they're a human invention, when you compare them to human invention, it's relatively recent. I mean, maybe one of the only exceptions that's still around is the Catholic Church. So, organizations that existed before the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution, I know, you don't think those things are important. They're important, okay? Those things that happened before those times don't really presage our present organizations. You can read people that can talk about organizations from 2,000 years ago but they don't really match. And that's because most of humankind was either enslaved or very nearly enslaved due to feudalism and the governance of kings more than, say, 700 years ago. Kings benefited enormously from a diffused society because king's power was decidedly fragile. People are like, no, no, the king had total power. Mm. Well, then why were the kings always dying? I mean, people, uh, anyway, okay, don't get me started. Oh, wait, we already have. We have a podcast just wait, to get me wait, started. Wait, it's a naked king. <laughs> oh, my. I'm this not. going to be the naked show. Unbelievable. Okay. Um, so, the Enlightenment comes along and the Renaissance and the Industrial Revolution. We have these great societal upheavals, and we have them to thank for our present organizations. Humankind during that time was gradually freed from all kinds of forms of bondage, one of which was, was poverty. And we responded, thanks to science and the, the ability to share knowledge, in part because of Gutenberg, 
we responded with an explosion of creativity and productivity that historians say that even though you think things are going fast now, no, 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 no. The big, the big change was a couple of hundred years ago. And this productivity explosion, because of the Industrial Revolution and the Scientific Revolution and so on, led to massive increases in standards of living. And that led to the creation of what we now think of as the middle class. And, you know, a lot of people don't understand this about economics, but middle cl- the middle class is what makes the world go. The whole point of third world countries is they want to create a middle class because there's always going to be rich people and there are always going to be poor people. But the difference is several hundred years ago, that's all there was. That's right. The, the middle class wealthy, is the right? engine and the, yeah, poor. And, and the super poor. And, and what did the wealthy want? They wanted to keep the super poor poor. Why? Because they were afraid of losing power. And, and when I tell this to people, when I'm having discussions about, you know, things, I say, well, if you want a little background, I can, and they're like, sure. I tell them this, they're like, really? I said, yeah, really. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's how it works. That's the world you live in. I don't know. Let the scales fall from your eyes. Now, full yeah. disclosure, if you're 25, I didn't know that when I was 25, but I've learned it. I don't know when I learned it. In fact, you, you've probably heard me say this before, Mike, um, I have a belief it's not a theory. It's not a principle. I have a belief that once an adult human learns something, they forget they ever didn't know it. And so something you learned at 30, right? And now you're 40 and you just take it for granted, right? Because it's it's built into your daily life. You forget that you didn't know that when you were 22. That's right. Well, what did kings, what did kings fear? They, they feared the only one other organization that comes even close, remotely close to what we have to do, which is the church, right? And merchants and merchant guilds, and all of a sudden yeah, power is diffused oh, yeah. through organizations, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in that case, we wouldn't say that the power was diffused. We would say the power was concentrated, right? As opposed to all mm. the serfs, right? All the peasants. The guilds and the church were concentrations of power. That yeah. she, in some cases, queens. Like, so kind of like organizations, well. right? They get things done go. as yeah. a group of people. Hmm. Yeah, so, so – you know, in the history lessons of, of, uh, of today, daily life was incredibly different 300 years ago than it was today. I mean, people starved to death routinely. And I know people still do starve to death, but not on the scope and scale that they used to. And the creation of the middle class, and frankly, one of the greatest engines of poverty reduction of wealth creation in, in the history of the world. But back then, there was nobles and serfs, and then now we have the middle class, and that happened in concert with the creation of human organizations outside of the church and the military. In fact, these magical revolutions, industrial, scientific, the Enlightenment, and so on, the Renaissance, actually, as an aside, guys, played a key role in something we all take for granted, our last names. You don't realize it, but with the creation of work, that was freely undertaken rather than commanded by the king, our modern naming conventions were born. And it's not a coincidence, guys, that Baker and Farmer and Smith and Taylor and Fisher are common names and common occupations from the 18th century. To a king, a serf didn't need a last name. They were serfs. They were beneath contemplation. Suddenly, we get growth and freedom. We begin to identify ourselves. And how do we identify ourselves? By what we did. 
by how we contributed to our society, by how we served our fellow man versus what we gave the king who believed that it was his to begin with anyway. So, okay, the growth of the middle class coming in part slowly, but more and more nowadays as the world continues to speed up, although the world has always been speeding up, building on this freedom and productivity explosion, it led to massive increases in both supply and demand. And I'll tell you something else people don't know about it. We'll have an entire cast on it, I'm sure, at some point, which will be ignored by the governmental and academic folks who are part of our community, and that's okay. Uh, and, and that's the, the pricing mechanism, the economic touchstone, or the capitalistic touchstone, the economic concept of the pricing mechanism, which was created even before money was created in the times when we used to barter. You can say you don't like this, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. When humans are free, they seek to maximize their health and safety. When demand for a tinker or a tailor or a smith or a grocer, when their goods, when their demand for their goods exceed their ability to supply them, prices go up. Goods are scarce, but demand crosses desire, and so pricing pressures occurred. This led to opportunities to hire apprentices and, and assistants and helpers, employees, which had never really existed before. These were basically, back when it all started, kind of proto-organizations. Yeah. And thereby increasing production, right? That's the, yes. the whole point of yes. it. Yes. <laughs> and I hate to tell you this, it's, but, but I think it's important when you think about, for instance, we're recording this as, as the U.S. military is leaving Afghanistan, freedom swept the world. The middle classes grew and organizations grew. And organizations grew to do what the people in the organizations wanted the organization to do, which is to serve their neighbors, their townsfolk, their nations, their society. Organizations, however demonized and mechanized and automated they may have or will become, are profoundly social structures. We do not call our corporations mechanizations. We call them organizations because they are of, by, and for other organisms. And so human organizations exist to serve other human organizations. And if you're in the organization, all the other humans outside of your organization have a name. And it's humankind or society. And then it gets even better. What does that mean? And there's more. So you, you do this. It's like the why question, series of five whys, right? Okay, but why? How many times have you and I had conversations about, you were telling me about something that happened in the company, or I was telling you something about happened in the company, and we described, okay, so we asked somebody, why? Well, why, why that? Why that? Why that? And then you discover, oh my. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> there's a fundamental misunderstanding at some level Oops. about what needs to be done. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But we don't want to fix the fourth why. We want to fix the first why when we can, when we have time. So if you get that humans fill up your organization, an empty organization is not an organization, and you get that these humans have agreed freely, they've joined the organization, they've agreed to give up some of their freedom, to give up some of their freedom, and that they understand that they're serving outside the organization, th there's some profound influences on these fundamental 
historical foundational principles of organizations. For instance, if the purpose of the organization is outside the organization, that's what it is, is society, to serve society, then, and this is going to blow your mind, folks, all results of all organizations exist only outside the organization. And by the way, if you think that's new, Peter Drucker said it 50 years ago. Results only occur outside the organization when it does or doesn't do what it's supposed to do relative to its purpose. Results cannot occur inside because that's not what the org is meant to do. Purpose determines the context of our results. By the way, hopefully some of your listeners right now go, I just learned something. Probably as a manager, I was 80% internal and 20% external. Mm -hmm. And I need to be exactly flipped right now, and I need to start spending time learning. We're going to have podcasts about that, about how you can learn about the outside world. And some of you have already made the change, but I can assure you, one of the mindset changes that executives make is they start thinking about whom they serve and not whom they're serving with. Not suggesting that you lose respect or trust or love or care for your colleagues. I'm not. But- If you're responsible for the results of the organization, and you are as an executive, and those results are outside the organization, you ought to be spending a lot of time thinking about what's going on inside the organization. Yeah. So if you think about organizations this way, derivatively from their purpose, and I would argue this is the best way to think of them, it is best for our discussions to think of the organization as a singular entity. Well, in fact, it is. That's the way corporations work. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Dude. Okay. We're going slowly through the principles, right? Okay. All right. right, Bear with me. Sorry. I I got out of my podcast. My podcast (laughs) persona is like, dude, that's that's obvious. Come on. That's that's obvious. It's legally. It's legally true. (laughs) But you say that in part for humor effect because you and I both know that people don't behave as Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's why I'm saying it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. You can think of employees as being inside the organization if that helps you. But your organization is not its employees, nor are the employees the organization. In fact, this is why, and people are bothered by this, but it's a necessary offshoot of our historical um, underpinnings here. Organizations have been granted legal personhood to help separate the entity from its purpose, society, and its constituents, employees, and in a different way from its owners. And an example of that would be shareholders, for instance. Something else, guys, while most of us think of shareholders, and when I, you know, I use an example of big capitalistic corporations, most of us think of shareholders as being outside of the company, okay? It's actually misleading to think of an organization's purpose as serving its shareholders, right? In fact, there's been some change in this in the last 20 years because, um, because of the interest in st- stakeholder discussions. I disagree with those discussions, and I we also disagree with the idea that an organization serves its shareholders. It does not. You can read a lot of economic things that suggest the CEO has to serve his or her largest shareholders, but that's actually an economic transactional uh, focus on the organization as opposed to a human focus on the organization. Serving uh, organizational shareholders is not the mission of a human organization. 
Both shareholders and employees are involved in the success of the corporate organization, one outside, obviously one inside, but they're not the purpose of the organization. Organizations do not exist to employ people. Most corporate organizations organizations serve a subset of society. And what do we call that subset? Customers. (laughs) Yeah. This is why Drucker once said that the purpose of any corporation is to create customers, which I think is just incredibly clever. It's an incredible conception right there by Drucker. Okay, one more comment here about the primacy of customers and external results that come from customers and not from employees or shareholders. Even the law recognizes this, guys. I mean, it's pretty known by people who pay attention to this stuff. When corporations declare bankruptcy, the first in line to get their money out of the collapsed system is not shareholders, it's bondholders. The debts of the organization, that's what bonds are, debts. The debts of the organization are paid because those debts were in service of the purpose of the organization, its customers. Now, I want to go back to something I said earlier. We're talking about ethical companies. Somebody is going to send me an article and say, oh, but look, this company's buying back its stock or whatever. I promise you, I'll have an answer for you. Uh, Typically, when there's a stock buyback, the company does not have in its mind a way to employ that cash that would bring a better return than to buy the stock. Unfortunately, a lot of organizations in the last 50 years have lost their way and their boards mistakenly uh, tell the CEO, we're going to reward you on stock price because the board believes that that the stock price is an effective proxy for the usefulness of the company. And in a way, they're right. In a way, they're wrong, but in a way, they're right. And it's a simple thing to do in the same way that profit is a simple way to measure the effectiveness of the organization, but that doesn't mean the way everybody seems to be arguing today on TV that companies reason to exist to, to create a profit. It is not. Companies exist to serve society. The company has to do it in a way to have profit so the organization can continue to exist. But when companies do stock buckbacks, they simply believe that there's no better way to employ their cash relative to the future value of the organization. And we can have that organization, we can have that discussion around a thousand different trees and probably never agree. And that's okay. So I mentioned this before, I'm going to mention again, we're going to take it a step further. All this, folks, is a derivation. All I'm doing is deriving the inevitability of these principles and concepts from the history and foundational principles of organizations. An organization does not serve its employees. No matter how interested and committed the organization is to, quote, taking care of, unquote, its people. Quite the contrary. In fact, employees serve the organization always and not the other way around. So I could come up with a thousand thought experiments, but think of it this way. If an organization existed only to serve its employees or its shareholders, a simple systemic analysis would show that that relationship would be short-lived. Without external forces, organizations that only serve either employees or shareholders would be like the proverbial flywheel, you know, the flywheel the, or the frictionless system, impossible to sustain without magical inputs. It's like cold fusion, right? 
It's the input from results from customers that sustain our modern organizations. And then by derivation, it's employees and it's owners. Results are external. Results are in society. And the organization exists to create them for its society. Let's keep going. If, if results can only occur outside the organization, and the organization is a single entity for purposes of analysis, where does this mean all the costs are? Yeah. That's right. Inside. Inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're a cost, folks. So am I. And I have to earn my cost in an economic calculation that goes down to the, to the atomic level, if you will. I have to earn my cost by creating more value that leads to value that customers are going to pay for, for us to be able to continue. All results are always exterior and all costs are always interior, including, dear listener, you. We are all but costs in our respective organizations. And look, I've had this conversation hundreds of times with people. And so I'm going to pause it right now that you would ask, but what about project results and internal employee accomplishments? It's well offered because this is the language we speak. Oh, what, what are your results on this project or whatever? But it, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not dispositive. All internal activity is cost and not results. We only think of them as results because we are now analyzing a sub-organization, either our team or ourselves or our division, because to talk about the entire organization is a fairly complex affair. But think about it, guys. Systems don't produce results internal only to themselves. By definition, system results are produced outside. That's not to say there aren't internal system effects, but those are not what is considered the result. A system that only presents results internally is not a system and, it, and is doomed to fail. Yeah. Well, and how many projects have you been involved in? Because I, I know I've been <laughs> involved in a hundred of them where there was a lot of work, a lot of costs, and there were no results <laughs> external to no the result. organization, right? And yeah, sad, sadly, I must say. And, and hopefully the, people are hearing the undercurrent here as we go through this long derivation that somebody's got to be in charge of making sure there are results. Guess mm. who that is? The executive. Ooh, now, look, nice, guys, nicely tied yeah. in there. We're not saying that you shouldn't think of yourself as a one-person organization. I don't want you to say, oh, I'm just a cog. I'm just a tiny cog in this big 50,000-person company. So it's impossible for me to make a difference. We encourage most professionals that we know, think of yourself as a one-person organization, a sub-sub-sub-sub-sub organization of your larger company or, or college or university or middle school or governmental cabinet office or whatever. The organization exists, your corporate organization or university or whatever, exists as a systemic entity, and so do you. But we here at MT can tell you that when you think of yourself as an individual, as we all usually do, it's easy to lose sight of the organization you serve and that it has different inputs and outputs that you do. And a win for you is not necessarily a win for your org, no matter how much you wish it to be. Muddled thinking around the different systems involved in organizational activities and their interactions and costs and results are at the heart of most conflicts and misunderstandings in organizations. And I promise, folks, we will talk more about all these ideas and how they affect executives differently 
than almost any other person in an organization. Now, I want to take another side note, if you'll let me, Mike, and talk about the shape of organizations. When we start talking about organizations, people, they just sort of immediately want to talk about shape. or they, Sometimes you structure, I try to... I try you're to talking about spans and control and manager lists and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, but, but there's actually more to it than that. But I like to, I want people to think about the shape of it because what, here's what I found. You tell me if you, you, you can, after I tell you what I found, whether or not it makes sense to you. Sometimes when I have a series of discussions with people, I'm able to infer the underlying principle that's keeping them from understanding. And I think, I, okay, I need to help people understand this stuff so they can be more effective in their own lives. But the way I like to describe shape and structure is if I say structure to people, they think rigid, they think org chart, and they don't know that org charts are shockingly fluid, even though they are hearing all the time about people moving around. Right. I think it's because when we think reorg, we only think about a big bad thing that happened after a bad you know, economic downturn or whatever. So I try to get them to think about shape because when people think about shape, they tend to approach that word shape as if it has more malleability. Yeah, a little bit more structure. fluid, right? Less, yeah. 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 So that's why, that's why I mentioned shape. But you're absolutely right. Uh, we get questions about spans of control, managerless organizations, which are always just a hoot, and structure. So let's just understand that too, folks. The reason our organizations are vertically structured and have the spans of control they do in most cases is because modern human organizations have always been vertically structured. How do we get there? We followed the structure of the only organizations bigger than the capitalistic ones, which, by the way, grew faster than the governmental organizations, and that was the military. Modern organizations may well yet find something better, but bet you a thousand bucks they don't. And as I've said to many people, when they tell me stories about this company or that company going managerless, I say, yeah, you'd never heard of that company until you read it in some trendy business magazine. And I promise you that trendy business magazine will not cover that company going back to a manager-based structure in five years. Because that's not cool. That's not sexy. That's not different. That's not popular. That's not countercultural. That's not, you know, hoo Peace to, you know, freedom to every individual. <laughs> we trust you. Go. Yeah, exactly. Look, all organizational shapes are a choice between trade-offs, and there are no right answers, especially when you each role is filled with a specific person. Folks, some CEOs have 10 direct reports because they love people and they want frequent communication and they want internal discussions. Some CEOs have one direct report. This CEO sees her role differently as leading or selling or strategizing. She doesn't want or doesn't like or isn't good at the people stuff relative to her massively impressive conceptual or ideation or product creation skills. And so if she's smart, she makes sure her COO is good with people and has all the people that used to report to the old CEO report to the COO. And when the CEO changes, that structure at the top will change. And when that changes, your part of the organization will have some changes affected yeah, as well. My, my brother-in-law now is a COO of the firm he's at, and he reports to the president. president has no other directs. Who reports to the yeah. CEO who has no other directs. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, we I, have some I, interesting I conversations. I don't, I don't think that's good. No. I really no, I would say not. 
No, yeah. <laughs> you got, so to be clear, there's a CEO and then a president and then a COO. Exactly. How, how many total And then everybody in the organization? else. How many total people? 110, roughly. Oh, my. Oh, my. Got some title inflation going on. Pretty yeah, impressive. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Look, the problem of shape and structure for most of us is twofold. One, we don't know what trade-offs were made to achieve the present structure and shape. And two, we failed to realize the longer timeline that would show us how our organizational shape changes. And people don't get it, but modern organizations are almost always in a state of shape flux. They're always in flux. And look, you're probably people thinking, I, I just want it to stay the same so I can understand who's in what role. Dude, you're serving society. Society is changing all the time. If you get static when the thing you're supposed to be taking care of, society, is staying fluid, you're dead. All the time, every day, every moment, society is changing. It's constantly evolving, right? That's yeah. Just- and so, therefore, the organizations that serve it have to be constantly evolving. And if you don't like change, <laughs> as I, I sometimes I say with a really dark sense of humor, but hopefully you all know that I love you. If you want a job without change, die. Because that's the only place you're going to find it. Yeah, that's permanent. Yeah, the next question is like, what is this? Okay, after all that, what does this mean for the executive? That's the next question. But I think I've been talking for too long, haven't I? Oh, I wouldn't say too long. I think it's been a long cast, but um, I I loved every minute of it. So Yeah, uh, I I got to tell you, those of you who are longtime listeners and you stuck with us this far, I am more excited about writing Manager's Rules cast today than I was two or three years ago. And I've been doing this now for 16 years, every single week. And because of executive tools, because I get I get to build out for communication purposes, this helpful understanding of what organizations do and what executives do. And now there's so many more tie-ins in my head. You know, yeah. b- before, five, six years ago, before I started really putting in the hours, getting my map of the universe for executive tools built. I knew those things, but I would think, okay, I'll get to that. I'll make a note over here and I'll make sure that I have a cast that addresses these pinch points or whatever. Ryan just refines your thinking. It just, oh, and, and right. Yeah. For, for every question that you answer in the writing, you discover like oh. 15 others. Have gotta <laughs> oh, be. So stupid. I'm so stupid. Every day I get smarter, I get stupider faster. Yeah. Right. Yeah, at least you realize. When you're young, you don't realize that. But when you're old, you're like, oh, my. It's so yeah, little time. There's a saying, too, about – because I, that's this is – other than golf, this is all I think about. And, um, you know, it's it's really – I remember reading it years ago, actually, after we had started doing the casts. And, I mean, if people remember the first cast, there were no show notes. We just talked. But that's the right. second cast, I said, dude, we're going to need something. And you said, they're called show notes. I said, Okay. I'll write them in advance. And which is really bad, which for, for our show, this is a really bad yeah, term. It's a really bad term. We should call it the white paper or something. Anyway, but uh, the quote that I read is, don't sit down to think about what you're going to write. Sit down to write about what you think. And I can assure you, <laughs> this is what I think about. I yeah. mean, I think I saw on the our P&L that I spent like, $750 on books last month? Oh, no. I was a little no, embarrassed. No, no, no. Last week. <laughs> no, last, last week. week. Oh, you yeah. spent. What? No, no. Yeah, but one of them was a $1,000 set of books, right? So that yeah. doesn't. That yeah, I was, I was curious. I've That's how much I trust, I trust my, my business partner. 
$1,000 Amazon for a book. I said, yeah, I, I'm curious to find out. 20 volumes. Okay, that's what I thought. That's what I, thought. That's what I yeah. assumed. That's what I assumed. But I was like, God, what are you, you going to tell? I hope that's it because that's, that's got to be a good book. It's awesome. Do you have it behind you? Actually, no. Interestingly, it's Amazon too, it's too has big. trouble. It's too big. I have one of them. You can see it right over here over my left shoulder. It's blue. It's sitting on top of one of my humidors. But there's 20 volumes that big. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I joke to Mark. I send him a, a note after the last things I think of things. I need that 20 volume set just yeah. every time I read things I think I think to figure <laughs> out what those 10 words are. Like, oh my God, you make it so hard on me. Somebody wrote me about that and they said I was being braggy. And, you know, it stung a little bit. But, uh, but my experience with my vocabulary is if I don't use the vocabulary actively, it goes away. Yeah. So my mom well, you, wrote Well, me. you enjoy, I mean, you enjoy words. You enjoy the subtlety of yeah. them. You, you enjoy words and you're sharing your enjoyment with folks. And right. I get how people react, but hey. Yeah. Well, well. <laughs> yeah. What do you it's, do? It's, enjoy it's it, not, Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. It's, it's uh, well, I use the word ineluctable and I used it in relation to my mom. And my mom wrote me. <laughs> And said, that's a good word. Oh, well, <laughs> like, your mom, yeah. well, yeah. The, yeah, the, she, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree yeah. in terms of knowledge yeah. of words and use of words. She has a better vocabulary than I do, and she's 87 years old. Yeah, so. she's pretty, she's yeah. pretty flippin' smart. All right, so we'll come back and talk about what does that mean for the executive? And by the way, this is kind of the start of all the rest of the executive tools cast. We're going to talk for an hour probably next week or in two weeks, and we're not even going to touch the surface. Yeah, there's... There's so much stuff. It's like, do you think you're going to run out of stuff to talk about? Like, I'm really worried. <laughs> we, I mean, we've yeah. committed to this executive tools cast. Are we okay? We, we have. We're sort of committed, aren't we? Yeah, kind of. It's like the old saying, the old joke about, uh, what was it, a ham and egg sandwich? Or a ham and egg, bre ham and egg yeah. first breakfast? The uh, the chicken made a uh, 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 contribution, but the pig made a commitment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure when you're writing cast to keep up on a on a Sunday morning, you're thinking... Yeah, it's more like uh yeah, more like a commitment. More like commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Take care.